Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So, my guest today is Nicole Barbero. I've been following Nicole's work for a long time, and I must say, I am a big fan. She has developed a platform for her writing, as well as a presence on social media, and it's been really cool to watch her do that. Um, Nicole has a PhD from Oakland University, that's in Detroit, in psychology, with a specialization in evolution and human development. Most of her recent work focuses that expertise on the area of education. She's got a lot of cool ideas, and I'm excited to see her develop those as she continues to do her writing and her researching. She's also a prolific reader, and this is probably the thing that uh, I, I am uh, most inspired by uh, from her. It's, it's something she takes really seriously as a part of her identity, and she wears it really well. Uh, I've been following her book reviews for a long time in other venues, but she recently just started a new forum for them, uh, and you can find that at bookmarkedreads.substack.com. So that's Bookmarked Reads uh, on Substack. And so anyway, in this conversation, we talk about Nicole's experiences excelling in academia. She published quite a lot um, and then transcending it. You know, she's still doing academic adjacent things, but it's not straight ahead academia. And so for anyone who is interested in doing a PhD and then doing something else slash something related, but not exactly, you know, a classic tenure track, she's such a cool role model for that. Anyway, we also talk about her approach to picking new books. Um, spoiler alert, it always starts with the cover. And then as well as, uh, we also talk about our strategies for, for getting one's work and ideas out to a broader audience. Uh, she's super cool and I really enjoyed talking to her and I'm excited to see w- where her work takes her in the future because I think she's done so much cool stuff already and I have no doubt that it's only the beginning of what she's going to do. And, um, yeah, it'll be cool to keep an eye on her as she, as she grows. So, um, without any further ado, here is Nicole Barbera. Well, so the first thing I like to ask people is, is where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Metro Detroit. So, um, I was born in Detroit. I grew up in St. Clair Shores, which is a kind of suburb right outside of the city on the east side. Um, so I lived there. I went to school, did my undergraduate and graduate degrees at Oakland university, which are about 30 miles North. So I kind of lived a little bit of everywhere in the broad Metro Detroit area, which covers a lot of area. Um, I lived out in Pittsburgh for a random year, um, and then moved out to Salt Lake city a couple years ago. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, Metro Detroit, what did your, what did your parents do? Um, my dad works for the city. So I come from a working class family. My dad works, uh, for one of the local cities, um, just kind of doing city maintenance and city work. Um, and my mom had a variety of kind of management roles in the service industry all growing up. So very working class background. So are you the family academic then? (laughs) Yeah. My sister, um, also went to school. So she has a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And then I have obviously my, my PhD. So we, but we took school very seriously in my family. So, um, it was always a expectation that we would, we would go to college, but yeah. I don't think they realized that I was going to spend a decade in college, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of funny, uh, like some, some family backgrounds, you have to explain to your parents why you're not going to go on to become a doctor or a lawyer. 
Some t- some family backgrounds, you have to explain to your parents why you need to do yet another degree, especially for a, a career outcome uh, as uncertain as the sort of PhD track and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. There was um, I I kind of found a loophole. So my parents were very generous and were trying to, you know, help out help us out while we were in college. Of like, okay, well, you know, cover your phone bill until you graduate, kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, I found a loophole here. I'll just go to college for 10 years. <laughs> and then eventually my dad's like, okay, I see what you did there. <laughs> we we got to kick you off at some point. So. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel stupid asking this question, but I, uh, it, I, I, I thought, so is Oakland University in Detroit? <laughs> um, this is not a stupid question. Um, it's very funny. I, I don't know how many times I've had to, tell people that midway through a conversation, they thought I lived in California um, when I say Oakland University. Um, but it is it is broadly in the Metro Detroit area. It's kind of on, it's in Oakland County. So the Metro Detroit area typically in, um, includes Wayne County, which is just the city of Detroit, um, Macomb County, which is where I grew up, which is kind of the suburbs right outside of the city. And then Oakland County, which is another kind of very, very suburban area. So Oakland university is about 30 miles North of the city, um, kind of on the outer edge of what is considered the Metro Detroit area. So yes, but no. Got it. Okay, cool. It's not in California. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, (laughs) not in the Bay area. I know nothing about the Bay area. Okay, so you did your undergrad degree in psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what sort of sparked your interest in that? Was that something you came in planning to study, or was that something you discovered during college? What what did that sort of look like for you? Yeah, so I actually was majoring in psychology from the outset. Um, I took a psychology course in high school, um, and I had a really great psychology teacher in high school, and it just really kind of sparked my interest in the field. Uh, so I was majoring in psychology when I started, I was also double majoring, um, in public health because for some reason I knew that there wasn't much to do with a psychology degree, um, with just a bachelor's degree. Um, so I was very practically oriented when I entered into college and I was doing public health because that seemed like a more practical career path. Um, I had no intentions of going to graduate school when I started, um, in college. So I was majoring in psychology just because I was interested in it, but also was double majoring in public health so I could get a job <laughs> when I graduated. And uh, wh- when did you start reading a lot of books? Was that was that something that had always been a, a facet of your, your sort of intellectual interest and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so I was always interested in reading. I read quite a lot since I was a kid. Um, I didn't start reading nonfiction exclusively until college, but um, I always grew up. I always had a book in my hand. I always went everywhere with books. Uh, So I was always, you know, a big uh, book reader all through childhood. Um, I started reading a lot of nonfiction in college, um, just, you know, based on kind of the things that you're studying. Um, And then I really kind of amped up the reading in graduate school. just based on my graduate advisor, Todd Shackelford is probably one of the most well-read people I've ever met. And when you go into his office, it is floor to ceiling, wall to wall bookshelves, probably, I don't know, I would estimate at least like 2000 books in his office and just constantly piles of like, have you read this yet? Have you read this yet? And I'm like, oh God, I got to keep up. So um, he was a really big influence on really amping up the, the level of reading to what I do today, but always been interested in reading. 
That's pretty rare for an academic, both for you and for for Todd. I feel like because so many of I feel like it's very common to hear, at least among my peers and you know a lot, even a lot of the professors that I know, they're like, oh, you know, I just don't have time for reading and and that sort of stuff. And uh, I certainly, uh, you know, I think that's bullshit. I think you either make time for it and it's a priority, or you, you do something else. Um, but uh, so I'm very impressed, and I think it's cool that both of you were able to you know, sort of maintain that and, and prioritize that. Yeah, I, I definitely make time for it every day, even now. Um, I mean, I, I read less in terms of like the journal articles than I did obviously in graduate school, but I always made it a good point. Um, it's a great way to read about other fields without having to dive into the really like technical areas. So, you know, I like reading about physics a lot kind of hard to just jump into a physics journal without any training. So, you know, popular books are a really good way to kind of expose yourself to a wide variety of different ideas and different perspectives. So, um, that's one of the nice things about how much I read is that I've been able to learn a lot about very random areas that I would never have formal kind of educational training in. So I want to go back to your sort of trajectory. So you said mm-hmm. you were very you know, kind of pragmatically oriented going into undergraduate. What happened? How come you chose to go on in in psychology more? (laughs) You know, I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking back about like, what are those random events that have kind of like big been, uh, have been big decision makers kind of in your path. Um, And why I ended up going into research um, in psychology really goes back to one professor that I had, uh, Dr. Scott Pickett. I took, uh, he's at University of Florida now, US, I'm botching that, but he's in Florida now. He left uh, Oakland University a couple years ago. Um, But he, I took an abnormal psychology class with him in undergraduate. I was a very quiet student um, most of my way through uh, undergraduate. I always sat in the front row, but I just never really spoke and participated in class. Um, And he, one day probably set off the, all the anxiety alarm bells that every student has when a professor goes, Hey, do you have a few minutes to talk after class? And you're just like, Oh crap, what happened? Um, and he immediately saw my face and being the good therapist that he is, he's like, it's not bad. I just want to ask you some questions. And I'm like, okay. Um, so he was running a research lab, um, as most professors do. And he was like, Hey, I'm really impressed with, you know, your, your, uh, you're writing, um, on the exams and just kind of like the way that you're approaching, you know, the class and stuff. Um, he's like, I encourage you to speak up, please, please start talking, which, you know, just that little bit of a push allowed me to start being much more vocal in class. But he asked me to join his lab, um, as a research assistant. This was, I think my junior year in, in college. Um, and I was so excited (laughs) that someone was like interested in having me work with them. Um, And I really, I ended up dropping my public health major um, during that time because the requirements at my university, you had to do kind of like a capstone type course. And I realized having to do a capstone, like community project experience and a capstone with research while I was working full time, I was like, I just can't do um, all of that. So I ended up dropping my public health major and just moving full steam ahead um, into the psychology research, which I realized was more interesting than my like bad stereotype of just like being a lab rat, um, for instance, in psychology. So I started working in his lab, 
Um, I thought it was really cool. I felt like I was having like an impact on, you know, knowledge and everything. So I got excited, uh, decided to devote my studies to psychology full-time and ended up deciding to go to graduate school within that time period as well. So that was kind of the, the one random professor that decided to ask me to, you know, work with him in his research lab, um, kind of changed my tra- uh, trajectory in that way. Funny how that works, you know? Um, here's, here's a kind of a random question, but I'm curious, what, what do you think the, the pros and cons of doing all three of your degrees, bachelor's, master's, and PhD at the same university? Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah. It wasn't my plan. Um, I can get to that. The, the big con of doing that is when people get mad at you online, they like to use it as kind of a mean insult of like, this has happened multiple times where I've gotten in um, some random little like, you know, controversial Twitter uh, disputes and people like to use it as an insult of, well, she has, you know, to decrease your credibility that she has all her degrees from just one university, um, which I think is a really like low level argument. You mean somebody. people people on Twitter are petty sometimes? Is that? Yeah, and it's funny because these are like professional academics. <laughs> like um, the probably the worst Twitter experience I had was I upset the student affairs group um, on Twitter, um, and then there was a long thread of how incredible and how unintelligent I am because I and, and how did you research. how did you upset them and what what and what was your strategy <laughs> for doing this I made the highly controversial statement that universities should focus more on education and less on student amenities mm. not student affairs and you know so it got my we should focus less on like kind of the uh marketing of student life at universities got conflated with student affairs and student support services, which was so are you saying literally not even the nice terminology you used? at Oakland University. That was <laughs> that was your uh, your subtext for your comment. Um we had a high <laughs> ropes course um installed <laughs> um while I was in graduate school. Well I can um, see why you not... stayed there, you know, the, the high ropes course. <laughs> yeah. Never have actually seen it, but it's definitely there. Um and I made a casual comment about the Froyo station that was also involved um uh put in, in the new student center. So, um, the big con is that people look down on that, especially in the U S which I think is less common in Europe, actually, because I had asked some professors, like, what are the pros and cons of me doing my graduate degree at the same place? Um, and those that, you know, worked in Europe were like, that's actually pretty common. Like it's not, it's not looked at negatively, but in the U S like you're expected to just move your life around every couple of years and collect degrees from all different places. So, um, that's the con is that an American higher ed, it's kind of looked down upon. Um, the benefit was that, you know, I grew up in Metro Detroit, so it was nice to be able to, you know, spend a lot of my time close to my friends and family, um, during that time. But I, I, my intention wasn't to go to Oakland university for my graduate degree. What had happened was Todd Shackelford, who ended up being my uh, PhD advisor, ended up taking the chair um, position my final, or I think my junior year in in undergrad. Um, and once I realized that I wanted to study evolutionary psychology, evolution, human behavior for a graduate program, um, they had started a graduate program at Oakland University specifically for evolution, human behavior which is very rare um, among graduate programs. There's not that many evolutionary focused graduate programs in psychology. 
in the country. So it just so happened that one of the top people in the field started a graduate program on the topic that I wanted to go to. And it also happened to be the university that I was already at. So, um, it was really just, you know, it made the most sense for what I wanted to study. So it wasn't like a, I want to stay here kind of idea. It was just that they happened to have some great people doing great work there. So that's yeah. where I went. Okay, cool. Um, so this is something that I kind of want to ask you about, which is, you know, I look at you from the outside and I think, okay, great. Here's this really capable, smart person, you know, sort of making their way and however you want to describe it, but, you know, sort of like early career academia, post-academia, academic adjacent jobs, that sort of stuff. Uh, and I fully expect you to continue to do really cool things as you've already done and, you know, like reach these, these next levels. So I'm curious right now at this point in your career, mm-hmm. how would you describe your plan, you know, with, with all your interests until this point? And then where are you at right now? Being like, okay, this is what I'm current, you know, like, like, yeah, I don't know if that's sort of a two-parter. What has been your plan until this point, and how has that looked? And, and like, how do you envision what you want to continue to do going into the future? Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a that's that a great very question. small so, topic of your entire <laughs> life very plan. Small, very small, very clear, concise answer for you. Um, you know, once once I took you know a non professor, non tenure track job, and I kind of left that pursuit after I spent. I did apply for three cycles um, to get jobs, and it's just it's so depressing. It's such a depressing job market. Um, I struggled for you know a solid year um, in my role just because I didn't know what the future looked like. Um, when you go to graduate school to become a professor and you're looking at that job future, it's a very linear path. You know, you get your PhD, you maybe do a postdoc, you get an assistant professor, you get tenured as associate professor, and then you're full professor. And then you retire and die (laughs) in your office on campus. Like it is a very linear path, um, with very clear milestones that you're supposed to hit. Once you leave that trajectory, you just have a massively open space. It's really hard to navigate. Um, and what's, you know, the benefit is that you can do so many different things. The, you know, the downside is that you can do so many different things and it's hard to figure out where you're going. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Currently I'm doing research in higher education. Um, so my, I'm a professional research scientist and kind of a nonprofit affiliated with the university. So I'm in kind of this gray space of like, still kind of academic, but not technically, I don't know, it's kind of, it's a weird space that I'm in. Um, but it's given me a lot of flexibility to think about, you know, where I want to go in the future. Um, and currently what I'm thinking about is I have really spent a lot of time over the last two years focusing on my writing skills, um, and really building up, you know, practicing writing for different audiences. I don't really write peer reviewed journal articles anymore. Um, which, is so much more fun. It's so much more fun to write fun blogs and op-eds and develop content, um, for the company that I work for and just writing for different audiences, writing different types of content. Um, and I realized that I really, really love writing. Um, so moving forward and looking forward, I don't know what my next step is going to look like exactly. I don't know what the title of my next job will look like. Um, but I want to focus more on content creation and writing um, in hopefully the education space or at least the broadly research and science space. But that's what I'm 
what I'm thinking of for my next steps as I continue on this very weird path that I've taken. And that, that's something that I have noticed about your your work, and I think you've done a great job at is, you know, doing the doing the writing stuff. It's you you, you do you, you do a lot of cool work on that, especially your Substack, which everyone should subscribe to after listening to this. Uh, I'll put the link in the uh, the the show notes. But uh, I guess I'm so I you know from my point of view, I'm a PhD student. Um, mm-hmm. I have my plan is my plan has always been to you know, sort of have writing be this main part of my career going forward. Uh, I don't really plan to pursue academic pursuits, and I'm hoping that the, you know, to sort of build towards the writing and content creation stuff, e.g., you know, podcast and things. But um, so I guess I am sort of interested in your perspective. Given that you've gone through the PhD process and you're now sort of building this um, portfolio of writing, etc., what would you have done earlier on if you were if you could go back and tell yourself okay get started on this a little bit earlier of uh, hmm. what would those what would those things be you know if you were doing it at the start of your phd or at least sometime during your phd some sort of thing what 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 would you what would you have potentially done differently or, or started earlier that's a good question um hmm you know, moving into the space that I'm hoping to move into and kind of more of this content creation type area, um, I might've taken, maybe tried to broaden my courses a little bit um, in other departments. So I, I did that my last year PhD, I took a uh, course in like the biology department, for example. Um, so I might've tried to, you know, diversify my courses a little bit in that way. Um, but I think I would have focused more on public facing writing. Um, so I didn't really, I. I published one kind of research piece in behavioral scientist when I was a graduate student, but I didn't quite focus that much on public writing. I tried to, um, I, I did a couple blog pieces, you know, my last year of uh, graduate school, but I think I would have focused more on diversifying my writing skills outside of the publications um, that I was really focused on. But I naively thought that that was going to be able to help me be more competitive on the job market. Um, so I focused a lot on publishing like 40 Beginner's papers as a graduate student. Publishing. And still somehow you can't get a job. So you whatever. can publish and still perish. They yes, don't tell you that I, in your first I year. did what I was supposed to do. I published a bunch of papers and it still doesn't matter. Um, but it was funny because I, I was applying for primarily teaching focused jobs and my research CV actually kind of did not uh, kind of play to my disadvantage because they're like, oh, it was perceived that I was applying as like a backup job because it's like, well, why aren't you pursuing a research focused job? He's obviously published. I'm like, no, I just want to teach. So, you know, I, I wish I would have mm, overall that's interesting. kind of focused a little bit more specifically on one type of area. I was trying to do everything um, to put me in the best position, but I think I should have been a little bit more focused. Um, either on uh, publishing in one specific area um, or, you know, developing my writing skills or really developing um, kind of marketing myself more as a teaching professor, which is what I was primarily going for. So my, my strategy in graduate school was do a lot of everything um, to make myself very well-rounded. But I think overall um, what I'm seeing now from PhD students and what I'm just kind of seeing on the market is, if you figure out what you really want to do, like if you want to do content creation and more public facing kind of science communications, 
really focus on that. If you want to really do kind of research and analytics and work, you know, like in tech, which is a popular field for psychology PhDs, focus on your stats. Like the topics that you actually research don't matter if you want to go into tech, really. It's can you code and program and, and do those kind of things. So if you have an idea of what you want to do, really focus uh, your skill development in that area rather than kind of trying to do everything. But I get interested in too many things and I start just going all over the place. So it's hard to focus it in sometimes. Yeah, it sort of echoes something that you wrote in one of your your blog posts, which was about how in graduate school, you're asked to do everything in the context of even specifically just research from conceiving mm. of the idea through the ethics, through the you know publication of it and everything. And that basically doesn't mirror what you're going to do, whatever your next step is. You're going to be doing a much more specific thing of that. So that's a microcosm of the kind of thing that you're saying, which is, you know, if you're following the track of being a good, competent grad student, you are like, like drawn all these different directions. And um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, it's, you know, you and I are the first ones to admit like, hell yeah, I wouldn't change my diverse interests for, for anything. And, yeah. you know, sort of uh, competency in, in different areas or whatever. But also being mindful of, of how that is drawing you towards uh, not necessarily developing the thing that you that you want to do later on. Yeah, especially for earlier jobs, you know, typical like in industry, it's more typical for you to kind of be a little bit more specialized when you start. Um, and then as you kind of move up, you become a little bit more general. So, um, you know, a lot of, you know, I don't regret like organizing conferences and doing, um, you know, a lot of publishing and a lot of teaching and doing all these different things. I think I've gained and developed a lot of really diverse skills throughout graduate school. Um, but it does make it harder at first because like, I'm not, I don't excel in kind of one specific space. I don't think like I'm more of like a holistic, really adaptable, flexible package of an employee, um, which I think is beneficial, but it's also can be difficult to market yourself for specific roles. Yeah. And that's similar. Like if you're going for a professor role, if you have a really wide array of research interests and you've published on a lot of topics, you know, it's hard because you want to focus your research statement and, you know, like what question, what specific question your lab's going to um, study, whereas then you can diversify as you move up that 10 year track. So I think, again, that's why I like kind of focusing on one area and like a specific set of skills might set you up better. Um, that is if you know what you want to do <laughs> earlier on. So let's go back to writing slash content strategies. So there's one mm -hmm. thing that I kind of flip back and forth on about like every 45 minutes, um, <laughs> which is there's this trade-off when you're writing, uh, especially when you have platforms like Substack, where you can mm -hmm. sort of accumulate your own following, uh, your pieces go directly to their inbox, and there's a sort of repository of your content. And the trade-off is that you can either write for that uh, for your own Substack newsletter column blog thing. And the pro is that every every follower you earn on that, every newsletter sign up you have on that, you you that is something that's going to sort of have a cumulative effect. You're going to have people like me who sign up for your newsletter and then six months later and be like, wow, I really have enjoyed reading this. I want to have you on my podcast. Great, that's nice. Whereas if maybe I read your thing in Inside Higher Ed, uh, you know, it'd be like, oh, cool article, forget about the author. Um, but the, uh, the downside is that, you know, your personal thing is not going to have as many readers as 
wherever you could publish it um, in in a traditional venue. And so the flip side is that in a traditional venue, you know, Scientific American, Psychology Today, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you can reach more people, and but you don't get to the the necessarily uh, as much out of people liking your work as you do if it is part of your substack, part of your column, part of whatever that is. So uh, it's a it's a tough trade off because both of them uh, the, they're both they're both important pros and it can sometimes uh, you know at least from my perspective be a little bit demoralizing if you feel like okay, well, I'm producing good content, but I don't feel like it's reaching as many people as I want. Should I switch over to doing more for, um, you know, a traditional outlet rather than um, trying, trying to build my own uh, column thingy? How do you think about that, that trade-off in your own writing? And, and, and what, are your, what are your sort of strategies for navigating that and balancing those things? I think that's a great question. And it's something that I'm actively kind of reorganizing in my own writing right now. Um, so, you know, I started blogging regularly in 2020 and it was mostly just because I had finished graduate school and I wanted to write more. Um, I think my first blog post is still my most popular blog post I've ever had. Um, and I don't think I've actually been even close to the amount of reads that that first one got. Which was that? Um, what was, what was that? It was, um, it actually came out of like a Twitter thread of someone arguing, um, about, why men and women can't have different average number of sex partners. Um, and I focused on a lot of sexual relationships and sexual psychology in graduate school. So I was like, huh, what, what is like the argument? Like, how do I break that down? So I wrote a medium piece that said like why men have more sex partners than women and like broke down all the math and like all the research going to it. And it still, ha- I think it has like 15,000 reads or something like it still the most, by far the most popular post I've had, um, which was good because I'm like, oh, people actually want to read this stuff. So it actually like, you know, set that ball rolling. But then it's bad because then you say, here's my expectation (laughs) level and everything after that falls short. I've only been disappointed since then. (laughs) Um, um, Yeah. So, you know, I started blogging regularly in 2020, uh, really to get more practice. And like, I want to practice figuring out like what type of content do people like, um, really just kind of trying to develop my own voice and writing style in kind of that casual format. Um, I launched my Substack about a year ago, um, in 2021, just because, you know, I thought it was really cool that you can, I was just publishing on my WordPress website. Um, but I thought Substack was cool that you can get it directly to the inbox. It's super easy, you know, um, user experience and, and set up on their website. Um, but, you know, my writing goals have kind of matured over time. So, you know, the, the trade-off that you mentioned of like my sub, my periodic pondering Substack, I can send it out to hundreds and hundreds of people at the click of a button. And my stuff goes right to your inbox. Um, whereas, you know, I have been trying to place writing in more outlets. So, you know, I got a few op-eds this year, um, one at Inside Higher Ed and Heterodox Academy, Behavioral Scientists. Um, it's just a much different type of writing. Like when you're actually writing for a specific outlet, um, it takes just so much more work and time uh, devoted to developing that piece. Whereas a blog, you can really have kind of these like kind of half-baked kind of ideas and thoughts and things. Um, So it's a little bit more personal, like you're having a conversation with someone or it's more of like an op-ed and placing it in an outlet is more like, you know, really spelling out your argument for somebody to convince them and persuade them of your opinion um, and your perspective. So I do see them as just kind of two different writing styles, but I also understand, 
you know, the trade-off that you're saying is like, you know, you can have a big piece in an outlet and you get a lot of exposure. Um, so, you know, if I'm writing an inside higher ed, their newsletter goes out to, I think, tens of thousands of people um, every day. So, you know, just the eyeballs that I have on that piece are just far higher than what I can get on my Substack. Um, but as you mentioned, you're not really building up that personal brand of like who you are as a person. Um, but I think, you know, having a good Twitter platform, you know, I've <laughs> invested a lot of time into my Twitter um, and for my personal branding on that. So my writing goals have just kind of matured over time. So even just a couple of weeks ago, um, I sent out kind of some updates on my periodic pondering substack that I'm going to just be publishing a little bit less frequently on that because I'm trying to place my op-ed typewriting into more outlets. Um, but I'll still have some, you know, different thoughts if they don't align with an outlet or if it's something a little bit more timely, but I'm not going to be publishing like three or four times a month. Like I had been most of the year on there. Um, but I did launch a new Substack uh, um, because I want to focus more on my opinion writing, um, and other outlets. And then I launched a new Substack uh, last week called bookmarked because I love reading a lot. Um, and so that's just going to be kind of like weekly little reviews of the books that I read, like my thoughts on them, what's interesting about them, um, with some similar book recommendations at the end of that. So that's kind of how I'm handling that trade-off right now is like, I want to focus on getting more of my big thought opinion pieces out in, um, some more substantial magazine outlets, and then focusing kind of more of my casual blog type writing in a more focused area. And that's on books that I'm reading. Um, so we're going to experiment with that for a little while, but overall, I've just been experimenting a lot with my writing over the last two years. So it's been, it's been quite fun though. Very cool. Yeah. Um, no, there's, there's no doubt that it's, it's, it's insane how difficult it is to, especially those initial, um, uh, pitches when you don't have as much of, a a portfolio of things that you can point out previously, even if you have that, like it's, it's just, it's crazy how difficult it is to, to place pieces in mm -hmm. legit venues and, and things like that. But I, I want to talk to you about your, um, uh, book reading slash reviewing and everything. Cause I think it's really cool that you've carved out this kind of brand as a behavioral slash social science trade book maven. Like I, I like that's, that's definitely one of the things that, comes to mind when I, when I think of your, your work, if I were to pit it down to something small. And I, uh, I think that's, that resonates with a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that's a cool, just sort of, uh, you know, niche that I think you've occupied really nicely. Um, so I've got lots of sort of questions on this, but I guess I'm curious to start off with what, when you're reading a, a nonfiction book, what, mm -hmm. what do you, what are you looking at? Right. Are you always looking at content? Are you looking at mm, who is the author and what does she know? And like, you know, what is the sort of perspective that she's writing from? What is her worldview? Are you looking at the structure of the argument? How do you tell me about how you are thinking about a book when you're when you're reading it? That's a great question. So when it comes to books, I I have very different expectations of different types of books. Um, so I read exclusively nonfiction. I've read just a handful of fiction books in the last like decade. Um, so I look at a, just a variety of things that kind of form this holistic package. And basically what it comes down to is when I first evaluate a book before I read it, like I have a certain type of expectation for that book based on kind of all these different factors that I take into account that I'll explain. Um, and then really my overall review is kind of, how do I think 
that book really met those expectations or not. Um, so I, I do, I read primarily hardback books. Um, I have started doing more audiobooks lately just to kind of fill some time while I'm driving and walking. Um, but I prefer to read hardback books. Um, so I do have a few like literally that I hardback books or like books that are on paper as opposed to like Kindle or PDF. I, I do not do e-reading at all. So it's either audio or literal hardbacks. Like I prefer a hardcover to a paperback. Oh, really? um, yeah, I'll pay more for a hardcover. Like I just like how it sits in my hand better. And then if I'm underlining, it has, you know, the hardback, which makes it easier to like. Do you, do you like dust covers? Like do you, uh, because when I get a hardback, the first thing I do is rip off the fucking dust cover and throw that in the <laughs> bin because I'm fucking hate those things i hate dust cover i keep the dust covers actually nice so they look nice on my bookshelf uh, um that's i don't smart. actually care if i get like the actual book itself you know like if I, I actually have a graveyard of dust covers like i've got this little area of just a pile of like you know like <laughs> dozens of these really nice uh but like immediately yeah. discarded dust covers yeah i don't use them to like protect the book mm -hmm. i use them purely for display purposes. But as soon as I read a book, I take the dust cover off. I don't read uh, it with the dust cover. Is that annoying? But, yeah. but, but here's the other thing though, is that I think uh, the book to me becomes more valuable the more degraded it becomes. So I mm. don't want to protect the book. I want a book I don't want to destroy it, but I want to show signs of like, oh, I took this around places. Like I want I, to read it. Yeah, I was I was yeah. interacting with this book for long enough that you can there's like there's manifestations of physical wear on it because it was a part of my life. Yeah. And that makes it my copy, not because it's pristine and sitting on my. So I like the uh, sort of the tatters of, of the book as a sort of sign that this was engaged with, this was well-loved, this was brought somewhere. This was put in a yeah, backpack. Yeah, like the authentic and, wearing of the book. Or inauthentic. I can live with inauthentic. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if it's a good secondhand book, knowing that someone else put some love into it, I can live with that yeah. as well. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I do judge books by their actual physical parameters. Um, mm -hmm. I hate when I get a book and, like, the pages are really thin or, like, the publisher just has really weird formatting of things. Um, there was a book I was reading, for example, where like whatever type and font that they use, like for A's and other capital letters, like made it look as there was no space in between the words, which was just so frustrating to read because like yeah. your brain's looking for the space to like separate the words. And I'm just like, so I hate when there's like, I've become very attentive to different publishers and like the quality of the actual physical book that they do. Um, I think Princeton University Press has the nicest physical books oh, out of any publisher. Nice. Yeah. So just check, go to like a Barnes and Noble and like check out some science book and look for the little P on the column. And it is on the, um, on the outside of the book. And it's just, they're the nicest books. Like, yeah. So I really appreciate like a really well, put together product. Um, so that's, you know, kind of a superficial thing that I kind of judge about books. Um, I do. But no, 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 no. I, I want to push back on that concept <laughs> okay. because I think it's symbolic of what's inside the book. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of the experience of it. There's like, I mean, if you're doing it on Kindle, you're, you're fine. It's not a part of the experience of it in the same no. way, but to some important degree, it is a part of the experience of reading the book and therefore deserves to be both taken seriously by the publisher and the author, as well as taken seriously by the reader and that sort of thing. And so I think that 
uh, authors, sometimes I talk to people on here and they're like, yeah, I can really give a shit what the title is or what the, the front cover is going to be. And I, I get that. It's not, you don't feel that that's your area of expertise. You feel that's your publisher's area of expertise. So you're going to defer to them. Okay. I kind of, I kind of get that, but no, no, no. I think ultimately it is symbolic of what's inside and mm-hmm. it, it sets the tone for your relationship to that book. And therefore it's important. And I think it's a crucial part of the, the reading experience. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Like people do think it's superficial. Like it is kind of superficial. We just like, oh, we should care about the argument and the content and like all these fancy intellectual things. But um, I was talking to the acquisitions editor at Harvard University Press and she was, she made a really good point to me. She's like, a book is a product. It is a product that you are selling. And so the holistic book really needs to be good. And like the actual physical quality of the book and like the actual product that is produced um, is really important. And I hate when people are like, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. I absolutely am judging a book by its cover. Like, and if you don't, it's kind of insulting to the artists and the marketers that designed that it, you know, that is their job and passion to like create these great book covers. And we, if, if you've ever gone in a bookstore, like you can't pick every single book off of the shelf in a section and like, let me evaluate the argument. You do use these superficial things at first of like, what does the cover look like? Is the title interesting? Do I recognize the name? So those, you know, initial kind of first impression things of a book do I think matter. Um, especially, you know, I get a lot of books from like recommendations and Twitter and stuff, but I do go to bookstores often just to peruse and see, um, what's there. And I find a lot of really fascinating books yesterday. I went to the bookstore, found like four books that I had never heard of before. never seen really excited about it. New bookstore Um, or old you use bookstore. Do you, uh, I go to Barnes and Noble. Yeah, I'm a okay. big Barnes and Noble fan. Um, I don't go to, I really like kind of indie smaller bookstores. Um, I'm a sucker for new books. I really like buying you love your hard, books. I like you love them. your hardcovers. You love your hardcovers. Yeah, I like the hardcover. I like getting them when they first come out. I like having them blank so I can mark them up. Um, so I do, uh, I like indie bookstores, but I find that they just don't have the, they, they tend to be much more focused on like fiction um, or more current affairs stuff. They just usually don't have good science sections, um, which is primarily what I'm interested in reading. So, um, I like my good Barnes Noble. I want to support, you know, keeping bookstores, um, generally in business. Um, but aside from, you know, the physical nature of the book, you know, I do, you know, the, the title is what's going to get me to pick up a book, you know, and titles are really important because they do give you, the argument of the book, or at least they should, if they don't, then, you know, it's not a very good title. Um, most, do you have you a know, theory about what re- makes for a good title? You know, I don't know if I could define it. It's just, I want to know what the point is. It's like science papers, right? When people try to put like these ambiguous titles and I'm mm. like, I should know what your main argument is in the title. So I guess yeah. that's, you know, kind of the point, like I should be able, you know, the title and the subtitle should tell me what the topic of the book is and what the general perspective is. Um, and that's going to make me more interested to read kind of the summary and see yeah. if this is something that I want to read. Um, so I think a good title should tell you the point. Just as when I'm reading science papers and I see like an ambiguous title, I'm like, yeah, but what, what's the finding? Like we shouldn't be hiding. Um, we shouldn't be hiding these things. Here, here's one theory that I've heard of for titles that I, I sort of, yeah, I I definitely think there's something to this, which is that the title should convey the main tension in the book. Mm-hmm. So the canonical example of this is War and Peace, right? Um, you know, so like that is that is that is the er tension, 
right? Um, but there should be, and a classic way to do it is, you know, X and Y. And mm. there's some fundamental clash between them or something, something that's pulling, pulling them apart. Um, or, you know, some, some sort of magnetic force that's, that's, that's happening there. And so I think one thing that uh, I expect from a title is not just, oh, summarize what's going to happen here, but create that narrative tension in as few words as possible, where there's not only a promise of here's what I'm going to learn, here's what I'm going to encounter, but what is the kind of thing that is peculiar, that's drawing me in, that is creating that, you know, that sense of already building, you know, narrative tension from the very first words. Yeah. And you also want something, what is unique about this? What makes this book different from the other 20 books on education that came out this month? So yeah, you, you know, you want something that's catchy, that's succinct. You know, I hate when it's like really clunky, long initial titles. Sometimes it works, but it's harder. Um, when you have a good, like two to four word, you know, kind of initial title, like something punchy. And I'm like, Ooh, that sounds interesting. Um, I think that that makes it really good. Um, and then the subtitle, I think are really important, you know, just kind of, and now kind of give you the kind of general argument that you can expect. Um, so, you know, titles of books, obviously I look at that is going to give me enough interest to read the summary and see if it's something I want. Um, with nonfiction, you know, I'll typically read the summary kind of, you know, publisher blurb about the book first. Um, if I don't know who the authors are, um, and sometimes, you know, I'll read it and I'll, especially with like more behavioral science, just because I can judge those kind of arguments a little bit better than I can for other topics. But if I see, you know, a catchy title, I read the summary, I'm like, well, wow, that's a really big argument, you know, like that's a really bold claim that I'm not sure. Then I'll go look at, I'm like, who's writing this? Um, so sometimes, you know, I'll, I do read books by science writers that aren't, you know, technical academics, but sometimes when I see, you know, a bold argument, I'm like, okay, that, that might be a little too poppy, you know, for me, a little too science, you know, popular science, um, in a way, which is a little bit more common with science writers, but not always, you know, like Ed Young has fantastic work and fantastic books um, in that way, um, even though he's just a science writer as well. Um, so I, I look at who, you know, that's kind of when I'm evaluating a book, I'll look at the title. Does it have a cool cover? Just is, you know, it's catchy. Read the summaries. It's something I'm interested in. Um, and then kind of see who's writing it just so I can have some context of, you know, where they're coming from and their background and experience. Um, so those are kind of more of those initial pieces. Um, I do like to look at the table of contents because, you know, I think that gives you kind of an idea of like the structure of the argument of, you know, kind of what the authors are going for. Um, I also like looking, this is a really weird thing that I didn't realize that I would find so important, but the length of chapters really matters. Like when I pick up a book and I see that it's like 50 page chapters, I'm just like, oh God, like that's annoying to read. Um, and it also, it signals to me at least that you don't have like a really concise organization to your argument. Um, if you really need like 50 page chapters, um, the ideal is like 15 to 20 pages. Personally, I found like, I love when a book is set up, it's like 15 to 20 pages, uh, per chapter. But when I see like 50 page chapters, almost always when I read those books, I feel like the argument, the book is always longer than it needs to be. And the argument isn't, um, the flow of the argument is a little all over the place. So, um, that's just like a little cue that I use. Um, well, I let's, anyone... let's, uh, 
that sort of gives you a, an overview of how you sort of look at, you know, initially a prize, you know, books when you're when you're sort of selecting them. But I want to ask you, what are what are the three most impactful books that uh, you know you you you've come across that have, that have changed the way you thought or impacted you in some significant way? What what's uh three do you have selected for us? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. Um, is I, I do read a lot, so I mean, I could probably pull like 20 books at least off my shelf of like that changed my way of thinking about things. So I chose uh three books that I think two of them represent um just kind of like change one uh, I guess one represents kind of the path that I took. Another one represents kind of my current thinking of where I am professionally in like the education at tech space. And then one just to open my eyes to a whole new genre of reading, of nonfiction reading that I've been quite obsessed with. So um, I'll start earlier. The one book that was probably most impactful to where I ended up um, today as an academic was Rob Kurzman's Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite. I'm showing it on camera here, even though the podcast listeners won't see it. Um, so when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, I was taking psychology, I had no exposure to evolutionary theory and how you can apply it to human behavior. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Todd Shackelford ended up taking, uh, he came in as chair, uh, at Oakland university, uh, midway through undergrad. And one of the first things he did was, you know, start a speaker series, you know, you know, kind of revving up kind of these evolutionary thinkers. And one of the first people he invited to the university was Rob Kurzban. Um, he had this new book come out, why everyone else is a hypocrite. Um, so he was coming to speak about that. Um, you know, so I got the little department flyer. Um, I couldn't go, it was a Thursday night and I was working, um, at the restaurant that night. So I couldn't go to the talk, but I saw the book and I was like, this sounds, you know, really interesting. You know, the subtitles evolution in the modular mind. And I'm like, that sounds fascinating. Um, so I ended up ordering the book. Um, and I don't know where that shift to my interest in evolutionary uh, evolution and human behavior would have happened without just that random, you know, kind of turn of events. Um, I read the book and I remember just feeling so satisfied and I was so interested in kind of this perspective of how we can apply uh, principles of evolutionary theory to understand human psychology and behavior. Um, so I ended up taking an evolutionary psychology course uh, at the university using David Buss's textbook, which is a standard course at Oakland University. Now, um, you know, I found out about Todd Shackelford that way, you know, like I ended up meeting Rob at conferences later. We're, we're great friends. And, you know, it really just led me down this whole path of, you know, what degree I got, who my PhD advisor was. And it was a really kind of random turning point um, intellectually in my career. Um, so that was one very impactful book. Um, the second one is quite different. Um, it's one of my favorite books in this uh, genre that I've read. And it's called We Are the Nerds. Um, and it's the birth and tumultuous life of Reddit, the internet's culture laboratory. Um, it's quite a hefty book um, by um, this woman called Christine Legorio Chafkin. Sorry if I butchered that. Um, I This is one of the first books that I read that was like a history of science and technology. And before that, I had read a lot of nonfiction books of like laying out scientific arguments for like a specific hypothesis. But I have become such a big reader of like science discovery books of like how we found out about, you know, like a certain science discovery, kind of like science memoirs almost, um, and a history of tech, uh, history of science discoveries. And this book really opened the door to that genre. I don't know how I came across this book, to be honest. 
Um, I'm not on Reddit, but I know how important Reddit is. And I've been on it a couple of times. I just could never get into it, but I know the impact of Reddit on our culture. It's like one of the most top visited websites, um, on the internet. And this book was fantastic. I highly recommend it to anyone, even if you're not on Reddit, but this book just really opened the door to that whole area. And it's one of my favorite genres of reading now. Um, and then one of the most recent books I read last year, that's really, um, had a big impact on me. Um, so I, you know, I work in higher education research. I work in the ed tech space. Um, pretty much my day job is evaluating the impact of ed tech at universities on students' outcomes. Um, and I've always been a little bit kind of skeptical of like, you know, of the idea that tech is going to revolutionize education. Um, I think we've all seen the last two years with the pandemic that online learning may not be all that it's cracked up to be. And, you know, some students aren't really loving it. Um, and there's, it's just a really complex space, but there's always been since the mid century, this idea that technology is going to revolutionize um, education. And this book um, is called Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. This was published in 2020 by Justin Reich, who's an ed tech uh, researcher at MIT. And this book is the most clear articulation of my hesitations about the impact of technology, what the hard limits are, how we scale learning, which is becoming an increasingly large problem that education is trying to solve. How do we educate millions and millions of people? Um, and it's just a really fantastic book. Um, he's also just a great, fun person to chat with. I've gotten the privilege to talk with him a couple of times about his research in this book. And he's just so full of energy. I just think this book really articulate some of some really pressing issues and hard limits on online learning um that we need to solve in order for educate or technology to really kind of um fulfill the promises um that we want so that's had a really big impact on my thinking as i've been in this kind of professional education at tech space uh the last two years since uh, finishing my phd so those are three books that i've managed to to grab well, I think for a follow-up podcast episode, what we should do is I should ask you for 20 books uh, that you want. <laughs> I'll just ask you the one question and then just let you go for however long it takes. And then we'll call that the episode, you know? So, uh, just that, do a tour of my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. We can just go book by book. Uh, and I would find that endlessly fascinating. You can do um, a YouTube live stream. <laughs> I would enjoy that so much. I'd sit here the entire time and be like, yes, and wow, great. And the next one. Um, that's cool. I'm uh yeah, no, I I have I've seen some of your stuff on your excitement about history of science and I I'm right there with you. I think that's so cool. I mean, that's that's part of what I'm interested in in, in a lot of my uh interviews here on, on the show is when I'm talking to someone who's, you know, uh uh, the you know on the stage before dying in their office on your linear <laughs> path of uh, you know and they've made their their big significant contracts like so so tell me about what was the process behind what was what was happening in that what was what were you experiencing personally and how did that manifest in your research so I'm interested mm -hmm. on at that level and then uh, a lot of my favorite books um, take that perspective one one that I bring up anytime something that, like this comes up which I think might be of interest to you is a book called. The Metaphysical Club uh, by uh, Louis Menand, and he is a professor of English at Harvard, and it, the book is a history of American pragmatism, the, mm. the philosophical school, and 
it is an undertaking. It is it is a project to read this book, and it'll take <laughs> even if you're uh, totally enraptured by it, it'll take a very long time to get through. Very uh, you know sort of uh, from an academic background, um, but a, a a popular general audience book. And uh, the the reason I think you'll be fascinated with it is that so it tells a sort of group biography of a number of these key American thinkers, sort of end of the 1800s, early 1900s. William James, founder of you know experimental psychology, uh, John Dewey, who of course is one of the key figures in American education, and then you know a couple other people in uh, in, in various backgrounds: Charles Sanders Peirce, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., and basically tells the story of how their joint philosophical school developed and became, you know, the things that you know those people uh, for. And it is the most satisfying um, history of ideas contextualized in social milieu as well as intellectual movements going basically from the American Civil War through, you know, the slightly south of mid-century, mid-century, mid-19th century John Dewey work. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, big project, but uh, for your- Is it your a really sp- long book? It is. Um, uh, so it may or may not, uh, uh, you know, it's, but uh, that is one of the reading experiences that even in the list of things, the longer list of things that changed my life, that is the like very, very top of, oh, nice. uh, of of all that. And it's it's at a lot of intersections of, of, of your interests. So I'm going to look that up and add it to my... Worth looking at the cover and then, you know, being like, <laughs> what's the summary? Who's this guy? Who is this? Who is this Luke Manan dude? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, so I, I like that sort of stuff as well. But uh, I guess I want to let you go here on time because you've been generous with your with your with your hour here. And I guess there's one last kind of little question uh, that I, I'm just curious to know is, you know, we talked about your interest in writing, talked about your interest in books. Do you mm-hmm. uh, is sort of your long term plan or something you want to do one day to to write a book? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um... That was a part of my motivation for starting to blog is just kind of find my voice, get practice with writing, um, and also get in the habit of writing regularly because, you know, undertaking a book project is a very big project. So if you don't have, you know, that disciplined habit of writing, it's going to be hard to execute that. So yes, the answer is yes. Um, I have the idea, um, it's all there. The, the main hang up right now is just, uh, trying to release some other commitments so I can, you know, make that dedicated time. I don't want to start it until I can actually That's cool. focus on it. So Have my you... goal is to start it in the next year. All right. Um, well, I won't grill you on air about <laughs> it uh, right now, um, uh, but I, I am going to be very curious to check back in and, and see how, how all that stuff is going. So Nicole, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. It was great to be here. And this is a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Nicole Barbero. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.